Hey, it's Mike. Before we dive into today's fascinating conversation, I just want to quickly mention another science communication project that I've been working really hard on this summer. A series of public science panels featuring experts from the University of Washington's astrobiology program. I moderated the first three of these panels, one about habitable extraterrestrial environments, one about the origin and nature of life, and the last about the search for biosignatures. You can find all of these panels on YouTube, and I put some handy links in the show notes for you. If you like them, make sure to subscribe to the UW Astrobiology channel for more fun and informative videos about life in the universe. Greetings, holograms, androids, and ugly bags of mostly water. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today is the first of two episodes exploring human interactions with technology with Thea Weiss. Having double majored in neuroscience and English literature at the University of Southern California, Thea is now a graduate student in psychology at the University of Washington, and my friend and colleague in the UW Astrobiology program. In her research, Thea uses knowledge of our species' evolutionary past to understand human experience in an increasingly technological present. Now, to keep up with the flood of new discoveries happening all the time, it's common for academic circles to form these things called journal clubs, weekly or bi-weekly meetings where colleagues gather to discuss the latest papers or to read seminal works for the first time together. A few weeks ago, I attended an astrobiology journal club meeting at the University of Washington, where Thea led a discussion of two incredible studies from her lab. One about how virtual simulations of nature compare to actual nature in terms of its restorative effects on human beings. The second was about the moral standing that children ascribe to robots. So not only was that meeting by far one of the most fun times I'd ever had at a journal club, I also realized that this was perfect material to bring aboard strange new worlds to discuss through a Star Trek lens. Today, we'll get to know Thea and how she discovered Star Trek The Next Generation during the COVID-19 lockdown, and then we'll discuss that first study, the one that examined the effects of nature versus simulated nature on human well-being, and talk about how the holodeck is used in Star Trek, such as by Lieutenant Barclay in the TNG episode Hollow Pursuits. Next week, we'll turn to the study of how human children ascribe moral and ethical standings to robots, which of course will take us in the direction of data, and the acclaimed TNG episode, The Measure of a Man. All right. Computer, begin program. 
Well, everyone, I am beyond excited to welcome University of Washington psychologist and my fellow University of Washington astrobiologist, Thea Weiss, to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thea, welcome aboard. Thank you for having me. You know, I have a feeling that this is going to be such a super interesting conversation, and I just want to begin with your background as a psychologist and as an astrobiologist. So we know each other because we're colleagues in the UW astrobiology program, and I just want to say my favorite fun fact about the UW astrobiology program, the thing that I literally tell everyone is that our program is so diverse. It includes chemists and biologists and geologists and astronomers and wait for it, psychologists That's too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like such a fun fact because like psychology is not something that you automatically associate with astrobiology. And you know, our field is often criticized from the outside even by other scientists, because like, you know, we haven't actually discovered any life out there yet. So sometimes people are like, what do you actually study? Um, and I hope that, you know, through this podcast and the four years that it's been going on, my listeners have gotten a really good feeling for why that's a silly criticism. But I feel like to many people, the intersection between psychology and astrobiology might be even more tenuous than the yeah. connection between molecular biology and astrobiology. Because not only have we not discovered any life out there, we definitely haven't discovered any intelligent, sentient life out there yet. So why is psychology a part of astrobiology? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a really, really exciting time to be a psychologist joining astrobiology. So from my personal experience, I was able to join astrobiology at the University of Washington through my uh, peer and my fellow psychologist, behavioral neuroscientist, Dominic Civitilli, who studies the octopus nervous system, right? Alternative models of intelligence. Um, <laughs> exactly. So psychology and its subdisciplines, both being like the, the social sciences of how people work, but also of the behavioral and the neuro neuroscience of how our consciousness or how our neural networks operate. Um, I think this is something that's critical to furthering astrobiology or at least adding to astrobiology as we're searching for life elsewhere. And one component of that might be sending people further and further. Uh, I mean, in the most recent or the, what we see on the closest horizon is Mars, right? Mm -hmm. We got to protect people's mental health yeah. in that context if we're going to look for evidence of life elsewhere. Um, but also this, this possibility of sentience of consciousness of other models of intelligence, just as there may be other forms of metabolisms, I think there may be other forms of consciousness or of sentience of intelligences that we are not quite aware of. And it's important for us to at least have some kind of foundation that we can use to build upon as we are searching beyond earth for life. I love that. I love that. You know, a lot of what occurs in astrobiology is trying to understand or take 
stabs at guesses of what might be out there and how life would evolve under a different planetary context. And we often look to the diversity of life here on Earth, how there are myriad environments here that have caused through natural selection and evolution, different forms of beings to mm -hmm. populate our planet. And like you said, how there are different metabolisms that make sense in one environment. But if you go to another one, maybe you wouldn't eat that and drink that or breathe that, <laughs> you know, you would, you would, you would eat and drink and breathe something else. And uh, when, when you brought up Dominic's research about octopus intelligence, you know, that is a completely different evolutionary lineage of intelligence that came out of the oceans. Um, I mean, I, I guess we all came out of the oceans <laughs> at some point, but you know, that evolved there in an aqueous environment. And who knows, maybe that could be an analog for an intelligence that would occur on like a subsurface ocean world, like Enceladus or Europa. Yeah. And, and, and you study the aspect of astrobiology, which is that we are biological creatures. And when yes. we go to the stars, we are literally an astrobiological experiment. You know, yes. we're the experimenters and the experiment itself. And, yes. and, and your lab studies how humans will interact with technology and environments out there. Can you say a little bit more about what your lab yeah. does? Yeah. So, um, my lab at the University of Washington, um, under the direction of my advisor, Professor Peter Kahn. It's called the Human Interaction with Nature and Technological Systems, HINTS lab for short. And uh, we do a lot of things, but the gist of it is that we're looking at the way that human beings interact with nature, with natural environments, and also with uh, technology, with artifactual environments or artifacts themselves. And we're looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, uh, knowing that we are these biological embodied beings who have just exploded with our technology, you know, and it's, it's this exponential curve of our technology increasing in its uh, pervasiveness and its sophistication and trying to understand where we are at this really interesting point and at this privileged point in our species trajectory. So we're going to touch on two papers that came out of your group, the Khan group, and and connect them with uh, certain Star Trek episodes. Yeah. Uh, that will yeah. come in just a sec uh, once we get to know you as a Star Trek fan a little bit more. So yeah. during the COVID-19 pandemic, I remember you telling me, Mike, I started watching Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, you, you did that without previously having seen very much Star Trek at all. So I was wondering if you could tell us the story of how did that come about? How did you decide that you were going to watch Star Trek? And what are your initial impressions of the show? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, pandemic, living in a studio, in Seattle for a portion of it. Um, I've always been a, a fan of science fiction. I think I got that from my, my dad. Um, and like my own personal favorite science fiction series, at least now, is uh, Battlestar Galactica, yeah. um, and uh, I watched all of that, and Stargate, um, and then I was like, well, Netflix, my sister works for Netflix, I, uh, so I'm like, okay, I'll go, you know, patronage for her company, and Star Trek, The Next Generation showed up on, and I was like, you know what, I feel like I need to, I need to watch this, this, <laughs> this it's like a, it's such a, if there are conventions, if there are people dressing up and if this has become this kind of like its own, its own culture, 
right? Of Star Trek. And if I want it, I want in on it. I want in <laughs> on it. And it looks like it's something fun. And so um, I just was like, sign me up. Let's go Starfleet. And I began watching uh, Star Trek as I was, you know, pandemic mode and just doing my work. And rather than being in something in the background that I was watching, it became something I was needing to like put my work aside and watch. So I was like, whoa, like this, this writing, this, this is going pretty deep and it's going pretty literary. And I was really impressed by the, the quality of the writing and of also just the humor in the, the script and of the maybe prophetic like science jargon that was included within the dialogue of the characters and of the just of the, the narrative. I love that somebody in the year 2021 can just pick up Star Trek The Next Generation, which, you know, premiered in the late 80s, um, some, what, 30-something years ago, uh, and and just watch it and enjoy it so much. It just shows how much this show really has held up over the years. And I love that TNG had this kind of breakthrough character in Deanna Troy, who is the yeah. ship's counselor. And I think that her existence, in particular, her place on the bridge right mm -hmm. next to the captain, like she literally sits right next to Captain Picard, yeah. really represents a hope that in the future we will value mental health, which you brought up, as yeah. much as we value physical health. So yeah, as a psychologist, what, what are your thoughts on Deanna Troy from what you've seen from her? Yeah, well, other than just being really cool character, it makes me happy that and it also just um, makes me um, impressed by the foresight of the the creators of Star Trek TNG to have this this counselor this person or I think she might be an empath mm -hmm. to being able to understand other people and the condition the mental state of other people is critical to maintaining the stability of the the mission of of exploring the final frontier. And I think they chose a very good actress and a very good character to uh, fill that role. And it just speaks to, I think we're also in a moment in our current society where people are becoming more uh, laid back with understanding that just as if I get, you know, a sprained knee or tendonitis, got to get it taken care of. If you're, you know, having some kind of mental health issue, it's not something that needs to be like pushed to the side and it's, it's just something that needs should you know be addressed, talk about it, and then you, we can all as a collective be better because we've addressed any of these issues. And it's not something that should be stigmatized, but rather just addressed. And honestly, that's what's really cool about the having counselor counselor Troy. Is it counselor? Yeah, counselor Troy. Exactly. I want to make sure I have the correct rank or demarcation. Yeah, yeah. So today we're going to talk about two papers from your research group with direct links to things that we see in Star Trek, in particular, Star Trek The Next Generation. So let's begin with the 2008 paper titled A Plasma Display Window, The Shifting yes. Baseline Problem in a Technologically Mediated Natural World. So this paper examined the psychological effects of nature versus a simulated view of nature versus no nature at all on people while they were doing some slightly stressful tasks. Um, Thea, Thea, could you walk us through this experiment? 
Yeah, so uh, this study came out of uh, my lab before I was in the lab, but is one of the seminal works from my professor. And so they wanted to investigate this idea of the shifting baseline of our increasing exposure to technologically mediated nature. Uh, maybe that's nature via the, the TV or just through photos. And so in this experiment, they had on the University of Washington campus, they had people in one of three conditions. Uh, the first condition being sitting in an office in, I think it was Marygates Hall, with a, a window view of that beautiful Drumheiler fountain water with all the trees that are kind of the hallmark of the University of Washington campus. Uh, that's first condition one. Condition two, same office, same view, except it's a, at that time, the best quality plasma TV technological representation, really big TV screen, still in our lab today. We use it as our like presenting dock. So condition two, they have that TV set up with a, a camera outside of Mary Gates Hall projecting the same view live. So the same exact uh, window view of nature with Drumheiler Fountain, except that you're seeing it through a screen. Hmm. Third condition, control condition, uh, which is uh, typical for psychology experiments, is just a blank, blank wall. They put the curtains over the window uh, just to, to have a baseline. So what they did was they had uh, participants uh, assigned to uh, one of these three groups and they wanted to see what would the potential restoration from stress be when we're looking at an actual view of nature or the same thing, same exact thing, except it's just on a technological screen, right? Mm -hmm. With the blank wall just being that baseline. And so they would have uh, participants in the uh, all three conditions go through a stressor task, which was simply the, uh, the experimenter delivering the instructions uh, to go through either a creativity task or a, an assessment. And then they were measuring physiologically their, their heart rate. And they wanted to see how quickly would the heart rate recover after the experimenter leaves the room and the participant is left and they can either, you know, depending upon which condition they're in, look out the window, look at the technological representation of the window, or look at a blank wall, right? And so while people looked just as long, because they were eye tracking just as long at this technological window display um, as people were looking at the actual window, heart rate recovered more quickly in the actual window condition. Same exact image, right? Same exact, like on our retina, what are we seeing? It's the same image, but when it was technologically represented, heart rate did not recover as quickly as in the actual window condition. And what about compared to the blank wall condition? So the blank wall condition, what we saw was the, the technological representation of nature was exactly the same. There's no difference in the recovery of heart rate from the blank wall to the technological representation. So being able to actually see nature or a view of nature to the outside uh, has implications for physiological recovery from a low level stressor. Wow, so what do you think it is? What's the main difference between real nature and the exact same nature view, but through a plasma TV? That's a great question. And 
I, in my own research, this is what kind of set me up for my own dissertation work um, and thinking about technologically mediated reality and nature in particular. So in human robotic interaction, there is this uh, idea of the uncanny valley. It comes from a, uh, I believe it's a German word, die unheimlich, like the familiar unfamiliar. <laughs> Interesting, I didn't know Yeah, that. yes. Um, I, I Freud wrote a little bit about it. And in human robotic interaction, I'll set that up so I can uh, apply it here. As we're interacting with a, a robot, there's this, this phenomenon that happens where we think of a robot, you can think of, you know, in your mind, R2-D2, I don't know, C-3PO, just going Star Wars here, or we can go data, right? So what I just hopefully represented in your mind or spoke and that you had visually represented in your mind is we had these more technologically like hardware robot, just tool looking robots. Mm -hmm. And then there's data or even C-3PO on the spectrum of anthropomorphism or yeah. how human-like it appears. And so in uh, The Buddha in the Robot by uh, Masahiro Mori, the uncanny valley this is introduced. And it's this idea where we, I guess we have two axes. Okay. All right. You're going to have to imagine this. So the y-axis, we can graph how much we like, how much we enjoy interacting with this, this other being, with this robot. And on the x-axis, let's have degree of human likeness, mm. right? So if we're at the, the zero point on the x-axis, it'd be like Roomba type deal, <laughs> okay? And over on the very far end of the x-axis, uh, we would have maybe data, yeah. something like that. And so on the Y, we go up, we're like, oh, I really, you know, enjoy interacting with this, this robotic being. And then on the, uh, we go down on the X axis, you're like, whoa, this is weird. I don't like it. Um, okay. So the uncanny valley, if we go from R2D2 Roomba, so Roomba, and then we go to R2D2 going C3PO people, what Masahiro Mori wrote about is that people enjoy interacting with these robotic beings more. They feel more of an effective and emotional engagement with these robotic beings. However, we reach a point at which we go, we go, down. We go sub, sub zero, Whoa. not in the uh, like Mortal Kombat way, but on the, the y-axis of how we feel toward this, not only disliking, but just feeling this almost like the familiar, unfamiliar, it, it was almost like disgust. Mm. Um, it's been compared to like uh, zombies or this being that is living, but is not. And we don't quite have the category that would fit it. However, so as it approaches human likeness, it reaches this tipping point and we go back up. We go back up afterward until we can like resume uh, just it looks like us, talks like us, we can't tell. And I think that's where data is. Mm -hmm. I think that data is, we just can't tell. Data could be, other than the way he looks, he could either be at the upturn of the uncanny valley, or he could be right before that weirdness kicks in, where we don't know if we don't know. So Thea, bring this concept of the uncanny valley back to the nature views from yes. this study. How does yes. that relate? So, and with respect to this study, you're sitting in this office, you know, imagine you're a participant, um, if you haven't been to the University of Washington campus, I implore you to go. 
beautiful right now, well, always, but especially in the summer, which is when this uh, they conducted the study when it was uh, sunny. And you want to look outside, you're working, you're maybe a little stressed out, and you, you see this view of the of beautiful water feature, trees. However, if you're walk, looking at a TV screen, a representation of that, even if you know it's live streamed, it can create this kind of yearning for the real, in my mind, it, yearning for this nostalgia for what you know it's real, you know it exists there, but you're not seeing it in its actual form. You are seeing a degraded representation of it. And what this study I think showed, although that's not what was discussed in this paper, but what I concluded and has been uh, building upon for my own research is I think there's a physiological reaction to this uncanny valley. It's not only a psychological phenomenon of Dio and Heimlich, the familiar, unfamiliar. I think physiologically, our bodies are attuned to representations of real or non-real. So that's so interesting. So basically to recap, what you're saying is that when we see an image of nature, even a live feed of nature, but projected through a technological medium like a plasma display screen, we are entering the uncanny valley. We are seeing something that shouldn't be shown to us through a technological medium. We, we think, oh, that that view should be coming from a window or just from my own eyes interacting with direct photons from those um, trees or water features. But instead, it's coming to me through a TV screen. And that's just weird. And I'm not having it. <laughs> I think I think psychologically, we might enjoy looking at it. We might think oh, I might turn on even just sounds of nature. Like personally, I sleep to have Google Home or Alexa playing sounds of nature. We might think that they are pleasant, but they are putting us into this space of an uncanny resemblance to reality. And the, the thing is though, the baseline is shifting. And like I said, our technology is increasing in its pervasiveness pervasiveness and sophistication at an exponential rate and so too is our own baseline of what is real or what is nature and so potentially this baseline is shifting and the uncanny valley itself may be shifting to what we understand as being familiar or real Wow. 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 So as what you're saying is as, uh, as time goes on and more and more of nature is being represented to us through technological media, we may shift what we perceive to be okay and not okay. And future generations may just think that plasma display screens full of trees and bird sounds uh, streaming at us is, is perfectly fine because that is what nature is to them. Exactly. And so my advisor coined a term, environmental generational amnesia, wherein each successive generation you know, you're born into a world, you experience the, the, and this is with respect to the environment, the natural environment, you accept that's what nature is. That's what the environment is. You don't take into account all the deforestation that has occurred. You don't take into account all of the human uh, mediation or destruction or artifactual creation around you. The baseline for what is natural 
And I think also now for what is real in terms of technological representations of things through phones, through VR, uh, through, I don't know if you played the PlayStation 5, but my partner just got one and he thinks it's great. And I was like, whoa. So and it's <laughs> shifting, it's shifting. And it's shifting so uh -huh. quickly that our bodies, our, our bodies are not equipped to keep up with this, this, the rate of change of our technology. We're still embodied mm -hmm. biological beings with an evolution, evolutionary heritage tied to the land, tied to the natural environment. So how do we address this, especially mm -hmm. as we, we go beyond Earth? I'm not lucky enough to have a PS5, but I do <laughs> think that I have experienced this shifting baseline. Um, what you're talking about really reminds me of the night sky. You know, mm -hmm. I've only ever lived in cities where light wow. pollution just completely obscures the stars. And when I went backpacking in the Grand Canyon and spent the night in the canyon where there are these giant cliffs that shield you from the rest of civilization, you look straight up and you see the Milky Way in its full glory. I just realized this is amazing, number one, but number two, this is what everybody saw on every clear night wow. in pre-industrial eras, right? Yeah. And, 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 and I was just like, that's mind blowing to me that that view of nature, I have been shifted. My baseline of nature has been shifted away from that because I've lived in cities, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the natural way that the night sky should look is just a few pinpricks of light when really up there yeah. <laughs> is this whole galaxy. Yeah. That's a really, really great point. I personally grew up in the Mojave desert so very small town, amazing views. Uh, we had telescopes and it was awesome to see meteor showers. Um, so I was accustomed to being able to look up and just be astounded each time. And more and more people are living in cities, right? And I think we are losing something when we are not able to grasp the, the vastness of life of existence mm -hmm. of the universe we become very uh focused on the self on uh technology and if we're gaining something through technology we're gaining something through living in cities obviously socially culturally there's a reason that they exist but i think we don't want to forget who we are and 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 where we are and how cool just life itself is and we need to allow our technology to be an affordance, but not a convenient inconvenience, mm. right? We, we have made our lives so convenient that we have created machines where we run in place, that we ha have <laughs> to run in place. My first job, I was a personal trainer uh, at Equinox, a gym in downtown Los Angeles. And as, as I would train clients, and even as myself was running on treadmill, it's like, is this what our bodies <laughs> were meant to do? Is why would we run in place? It's now uh, bodies have almost become like uh, an inconvenience for us. We have to feed them. We have to make them move around. But before it was, you move, and that's how you were in synchrony with, in harmony with the environment, with the whole of Earth. And our technology has allowed us capabilities beyond that. 
So I think we're at this really, really, really cool intersection of human technology that we can begin to use it just as we use our like Apple watches or our garments to track our physiology and say, okay, where's my heart rate? Where's my, you know, how much have I moved today? I think we're, we're, we're at a point of coming back in tune with ourselves, each other and the environment with our technology, but we have to have a vision that moves us there to enable us to take that Jeep and go out to the Grand Canyon and camp and look at the stars and to protect that and to have your cake and eat it too have the obvious advantages and the incredible progress that comes from a technological species and civilization in urban dense environments, but allowing for nature to persist and for us to coexist with it. And it would only be to the benefit of us and the planet. Amazing. I love that. Uh, let's turn this now back to Star yeah. Trek and think about the future. Our 100%. Star Trek connection which our listeners may have, you know, already guessed, is the holodeck. Yes. You know, in, in so many episodes, we see the crew run a holodeck program to get some rest and relaxation, to run a simulated view or experience in a simulated environment, usually a natural environment, because oftentimes this involves a walk on a beach or a stroll through a forest or yeah. some beautiful alien landscape. And, you know, the results of the study that we just discussed indicates that simulated nature just isn't as good as the real thing. Yes. So do you think you can extrapolate that conclusion to future views of nature, whether it's VR or even one day, perhaps the holodeck? Yeah, so I really enjoyed the the episode that I just recently watched with uh, Barkley Broccoli. Yeah, his, pursuits. Yeah. Yes, and his <laughs> uh, his crazy holodeck cool imagination. I think it's critical for those of us on earth to keep in mind that technologically represented nature, whether it be recording, whether it be computer generated, it's not the same as actual nature and it will never be as beneficial for you psychologically or physiologically. However, when we are in a, a situation that necessitates us to recreate nature or to support ourselves psychologically and physiologically, we can take cues from the natural environment and recreate them. And that's exactly what Barclay did and his, among other things, creating this beautiful forested environment. You hear birdsong, right? You hear water flowing. You see the trees and the lushness and there's a lot of research in the human and interaction with natural environment field of why natural environments are restorative for us, both in terms of attention restoration, cognitive functioning, uh, but also stress reduction and parasympathetic autonomic nervous system engagement. But I also think there is just this, uh, it could be a change literally of scenery 
if we're if we're thinking we're on you know in Starfleet and all you have is the ship walls around you the ability to either go into a holodeck and which is I think what we have right now would be a virtual reality version of nature we do see that there are benefits from interacting with simulated nature as opposed to interacting with absolutely nothing. You were talking about the uncanny valley. Yes. Um, and the holodeck to me seems like, you know, if the plasma display screen was in the uncanny valley, like right down there, the holodeck seems to me like it would be after the valley, you know, like yes. it moves back up kind of. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, do you think we could reach a point, uh, especially if holodecks ever come into existence, you know, I'll leave that up to the technologists yeah, only. to let me know. Yeah. Uh, but, but assuming that, you know, you could walk into a holodeck and run a nature program, do you think that that could have actually the exact same physiological and psychological benefits as real nature? Or do you yes. think that just the mere, the, the, the knowledge of it being a holodeck program will get in the way of that? That's a great, great point. And that is exactly where my research is. And it's a really hot topic of investigation to see, well, how good can it be? How restorative can it be? So what follows from here is my own speculation and my own hypotheses regarding the work that I will be conducting for my dissertation. And I predict that it really, I mean, there's going to be individual variability, but I believe there can be significant psychological and physiological restoration from simulated natural environments. And it depends on context. So if we're talking about isolated, confined and extreme environments, such as what will exist in the search for life elsewhere in the universe, if people are gonna be a part of that, this is a different level. You're no longer on earth and we know that we have these psychological and physiological ties to the earth and to the natural environment and interacting with nature in virtual reality or in hollow deck reality can provide escape from that small space that you're in. And it can also provide you with some of the psychological and physiological attention restoration, stress reducing benefits of nature. But there's so many variables at play and the uncanny valley comes in where we're looking at, well, do we want to look at recording of, uh, you know, we put Mike Wong on a trip to Mars. Do we want to, do we want to put him in a VR representation? That's a very high quality recorded reproduction of his hometown nature, or do we want it to be a completely computer generated environment that is germane to the virtual reality hardware and software that it only exists in the holodeck or in the VR. Hmm. And that's the question because I might predict that you going into this recorded reproduction of your own uh, home environment, natural environment might give you this nostalgia, but in an uncanny, familiar, unfamiliar fashion that just hmm. creates a longing that cannot be addressed. Yeah. But with the computer generated, we're putting you into an environment that only it only exists there. That is its natural state is to be unnaturally represented in virtual reality. And it's more interactive. You're more embodied in it. You're able to move in it in the way you would if you were at home. So it's this 
very strange point of intense research right now and exactly where my own dissertation work lies. Oh, that's so cool. I can't wait to find out what you discover uh, with your experiments. And that totally makes sense to me, right? That if you were to show me a VR, you know, representation of my own home, I would be like, this is weird. (laughs) But if you were to show me a VR representation of like some made up alien landscape, I'd be like, that's fine because I've never seen this place before. I've never walked around in it before. It, it kind of brings us back to the whole video game discussion. Yes. You, know, you can walk around the video games and that world of in the video game only exists in that video game. And so it can be super immersive. Yeah. But if, you know, for whatever reason, somebody made a video game of your own life, you'd just be like, this is total this is exactly nonsense. exactly what I do. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I think that also has to do with the idea of the the other episode I was able to watch with uh, Data and what is his state of being, of consciousness, of his relationship to those around him. And I think this is going to become, it's going to become an issue that uh, is more prescient as we go forward, following that exponential growth of our technology. And it's really cool to see that in, I guess in the late 80s and early 90s, Star Trek was already considering these issues. But if we're interacting with robotic beings or whatever way we want to say artificially intelligent beings, and I understand that that term has uh, layers to it and history to it, but if we're going to think of the episode we watched and of uh, what we have currently, um, data clearly behaves like a person in terms of looking like us, walking like us, even having a relationship with a crew member that was intimate, that he kept something, a keepsake, something is important to him that shows emotion, affect. And so the the critical debate that Picard, uh, the turning point of that that scene of the, the court was that he's displaying, Data is displaying all of these qualities of sentience So how can we distinguish between data and ourselves? And how can we say that this sentient being, although created by man, although its origin is made by man, how can we say that it is therefore not of the same status of man? And I think that also has to do with our relationship to the earth. These things are on the same level as us. Just because either we are able to manipulate it or we're able to create it, Does it mean that then it's our property? I think there's a a false hierarchy that exists in terms of man and human relationship to technology in the world around us. And that episode with data was a great representation of if we're going forward and and looking at, you know, not just saying, hey, Alexa, set a timer for me, but hey, Alexa, it's embodied Android female nanny for my children or male nanny, whatever, it doesn't matter. At what point do they become sentient beings and we give them due uh, respect in a relational way, not in a dominational way? That was part one of my conversation with UW graduate student Thea Weiss. On the next episode of Strange New Worlds, we'll continue thinking about the themes of consciousness, artificial intelligence, and robots by discussing a study from Thea's lab that examined how children ascribe moral and ethical standings to a robot that can talk, 
move, react, learn, and express desires. And, of course, we'll find out what gives Thea hope for the future. Until then, your homework is to go find the nearest patch of nature and think about the shifting baselines in your own life. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you out there. Thank you.